Hello and welcome to the Diction Police. I'm your host, Ellen Rissinger, an American vocal coach accompanist on the music staff of the Zemperoper in Dresden, Germany. We're sticking with English diction and with Jason Nadecki again, this time discussing the text to Music for a While. Again, we're concentrating on the differences between British received pronunciation and American standard English, focusing on how to handle R's, a little bit about glottals, a review of some of those vowel shifts from last week, and a topic that's near and dear to my heart, voiced consonants at the ends of words. People often ask me for advice on studying languages, whether it be beginners just trying to figure it out for the first time, or specific questions like I got last week on how I look at my flashcards, or just any tricks that would make studying go faster. Unfortunately, I don't know anything quite as simple as the seven steps to learn music, but there are quite a few things about studying languages that I can suggest that work for me. First of all, if you are just starting out learning foreign languages, and haven't studied any other ones before this, it might seem really tough at first. It gets easier the more languages you learn because you end up seeing patterns between the languages. So if you're a real beginner to foreign languages, you'll need a balance of reading it on the page, hearing people pronounce it, speaking it for yourself, being able to write what you hear, and understanding the grammar of your own native language. The first things that they teach in classroom language courses are always greetings, which aren't very helpful in opera repertoire, but use that time to get acquainted with the alphabet that each language uses and the way things are spelled. The ch sound in ciao in Italian is spelled differently from the same sound in trus in German. And if you don't take the time at the beginning to figure out the orthography of the language, you'll end up either working much harder later or paying a coach like me to fix everything and tell you what's right. Once we've moved on to learning vocabulary, most of us use flashcards as a study aid. Now, there are boxes that you can buy with pre-made thousands of words in flashcards in some languages, and I own some of those, but I don't recommend them. It's much better to actually create the flashcards yourself. First, some of us are tactile like me, and yes, of course, I think that comes from being a pianist. So if I write something down, I remember it better. Second, you can set up the cards any way you want. And I always like to leave space for any extra info, like the plural of the word, or any irregular verb stems that come from it, any phrases that the word can be used often in, or stuff like that. Third, you can put in phonetics. My Italian flashcards all have the stressed syllable marked with open and closed E's and O's and voiced Z's. My Russian cards have the stressed syllable marked plus the plural because the word stress often changes in Russian. In French, the card with the verb faire on it, to do or to make, has the pronunciation exceptions of faisons and fusil marked, so that every time I look at them, I'm reminded of these things over and over. Now, the friend that asked me last week about flashcards wondered whether I looked at the English side or the other side when I look at mine. He'd gotten into an argument with a fellow student who said she'd learned to look at her native language first and then try to think of the word in the foreign language. He had learned exactly the opposite, to look at the foreign language and try to match it to the English word. But when I use my flashcards as a study aid, rather than trying to remember the English word on the other side of the card, I try attaching an image to the foreign word. For example, 
If the word is Fenster in German, I look at the German word, then look at my window, saying Das Fenster a couple of times. And I always use the article. It's a little more complicated with ideas, prepositions, or conjunctions, but then I always try to use it in a sentence or create a link to something else. But I always look at the foreign language and try to connect it to an image or an idea. One of the best verb exercises I ever learned was in my French 3 class, which I took as a summer course at the University of Pittsburgh a long time ago. Every time we learned a new verb, she made us go through the entire conjugation. Je suis, tu es, il est, etc. And then we had to go through it as a question. Suis-je, es-tu, est-il, est-elle, etc. Or, est-ce que je suis, qu'est-ce que tu es, qu'est-ce qu'il est, and so forth. And then in the negative, je ne suis pas, tu n'es pas, etc. And then in the negative as a question, ne suis-je pas, n'es-tu pas, you get the idea. As we started adding different verb tenses and reflexive verbs into the mix, it got crazy complicated really fast. But it really made you say the words in order, and having those sounds in your ears and on the tip of your tongue is half the battle. Most of language learning is building neural pathways, and the more you practice the correct sounds in a row, the more likely you are to get them out correctly when the time comes. It's just like learning music. Next week, I'll add on to this list because there are far too many ways to study languages to just list all at once. And in the meantime, I'll add these tips onto the page of 7 Steps to Learn Music, as well as a link to the text for today at the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. Don't forget the the. You can also follow The Diction Police on Facebook or on Twitter at Diction Police. Our text for today is Music for a While, a song by Henry Purcell, which was incidental music to John Dryden and Nathaniel Lee's play Oedipus, a very successful work at the time. Originally composed for voice and continuo, there are several realizations of Music for a While, including one by Benjamin Britten. Music for a while shall all your cares beguile, wondering how your pains were eased and disdaining to be pleased, till Alecto free the dead from their eternal bands, till the snakes drop from her head and the whip from out her hands. That was yeah. Jason Nadecki reading the text to music for a while. And again, we have the WHs. Yes, a little goes a long way. I have a friend who was, who was in England very recently and uh, spoke to some colleagues who sing in the Church of England. And you'd expect them, certainly, to, to keep the the while, the, the unvoiced upside-down W, so to speak, in, in IPA. Uh-huh. Actually, they said, come on, that sounds so old-fashioned. We don't bother with it anymore. <laughs> now, for solo repertoire, especially older music like this, I like it. I do like it. I like it but too. Only a wee little bit, a wee little bit, not not tons of quiet, because that is affected and and it disturbs the line. I yeah. mean, it, it gets in the way. Yeah. Um, so, whatever's left with the air in the mouth, whatever already exists there, just sort of get that out of it, and it's enough. Music for a while. Yep. Not while. 
Well, and the one I like the most, though, is WHIP. Whip. Yeah, I think that makes it nice, kind of a nice kind of flicked, you know, all, almost onomatopoeic. Exactly. In, in the sound of the whip, and, oh. and the whip doesn't have the same effect. I don't think it doesn't snap at you like a whip yeah, does. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay, and speaking of onomatopoeia, we have yeah. we have the word drop that we say here in this song gets pronounced four million times with the palisade between every single one. So. Yeah. Drop, 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 drop. So, I had to look this up a little bit and and try to wrap my head around it as well. If we've decided that we'll use an historic RP, mm-hmm. so uh, a more traditional pronunciation, and we've already dropped the um, dropped <laughs> the, the the bird R in favor of a more old-fashioned flipped or rolled R, we have to decide what to do with this combination, this little cluster of dr. And the textbooks say that. The bird R was introduced much, much earlier in these combinations of DR and TR. Yeah, so that the tongue guess, doesn't have to go. Right. I guess because dr and tr sounds really choppy and it's difficult to do and it kind of sounds foreign or Scottish or something. Drop. I don't know. If you're able to do till the snakes drop, 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 I think it works really well. Not too much r, of course. Right. And be careful not to change the d into the j affricate. So not drop. As long as we avoid that, I think I tend to agree with with the textbooks, the rules. So yeah. we can use a modern r there. So back to back words, drop from. The so from the fr can keep keep a nice little flipped r. It's okay. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't become weird in an articulation sense because of the progression from F to R, like it does with D-R. That, yeah, that gets in the first sentence, in the third sentence, we actually have what would have been a dropped R that you yes. flipped into the next vowels. Yeah, that's called a linking R. So that's my car. I'm the car owner. So it links on as it goes into the vowel. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like liaison in French. Mm-hmm. The, the consonant is printed, but it's normally silent it gets pronounced as it links on to the next vowel. The linking R should happen in like music for a while, unless you want to place in a lyric setting when you're singing the next word. So you could have wondering how your pains were eased. With a slight lift, glottis, yeah. however you want to call it, glottal. Yeah, and, uh, and I think a little glottal's okay there if you want to, to sort of stress or, or come to rest on the word eased. Yeah. Uh, that would work well. Or you could flip it. Word eased. Yeah, exactly. No more than one flip. Otherwise, it sounds like greased. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What's interesting to me, too, is that at the end of every single, almost every single line, actually, no, every single line, we have voiced consonants. Yeah. Most, most of the lyric languages that we study things at the ends will unvoice, like in German, in Czech, in Russian. Right. Everything at the end will unvoice, but this doesn't happen in English, and so we can't say east. East right. is something completely different from eased. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in English, the ends of words are very important. Um, bringing them out clearly, it, it's a huge thing. Whatever accent you're in, to make the language understood. So with consonants like d, n, m, to have that little shadow schwa follow the, the consonant is really important. Yes. And we don't do it when we're speaking. No. But in a lyric setting, we have to. 
-hmm. So eased, pleased, dead. When it comes to the L, we have kind of a, it's called a velarized L, a darkened L in English, mm -hmm. not unlike in, English, in Russian. Mm -hmm. So I would say while and beguile. Mm -hmm. When we're singing, it's nice to make a shift to a clear L. Uh -huh. So, music for a while. Exactly, to pull the L front. Yeah, it sounds good. You don't have to do it everywhere, but certainly something that's legato like this, it, it does sound very nice, very um, refined and yeah. clear and not, you know, pulled down in any way. Exactly. We can make a little assimilation or implosion with and disdaining. Mm-hmm, so that and we stop the, the D of and yeah. disdain, yeah. Yeah, not unlike und du. Mm-hmm. Du is very particular, as would be and disdaining. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, unless it's really slow or you want to place and disdaining, which you could do, I would just go ahead and, and uh, implode that or, or yeah. assimilate it together. Yeah, I think with the word and, I seldom, yeah. I seldom want to hear the D of and because most of the time, even in current speech, it becomes the word and, and yeah. anyway. Yeah, but, in connected speech, it would everywhere. Yeah, and just you to go back to the L's for a second, to go back to yeah. the L's for a second, we have shall, and then my favorite sound, all. Right, <laughs> so here we have that long, open O that is used in, in British English all over the place, all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it's great, I mean, it's, a, it's a, one of the vowels on the palette here that, that, that we can paint with. Why yeah. not use it? Exactly. It, it works really well. Yeah. If you don't want to do it and you sing shall, you have to know that you're firmly deciding, no, my American pronunciation is better. Yes. And I just, I, 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 I can't go for that. Well, and you know, I, I can understand if you're young and you're afraid to, to sound too hoity-toity. I can understand it, but just know then that eventually it's something to learn. It's something to, to change, to, to switch over to the British pronunciation, I think. Because I'm hesitant I, to say, I mean, because I know my ears, having played this when I was 19 and 20 for all kinds of singers, everybody wanted to sing shall all, shall all, shall all. Yeah. And you hear yeah. that a lot. Yeah, all is a, is a word that we encounter a lot. And there are lots of them that have this kind of shift to the long, open, all, thought brought mm -hmm. and and even as i say it i i feel as though i'm i'm adopting a bit of an accent of course i am but but like i said before isn't that what we do as singers it's exactly what so we do yes you can't you can't assume that your own mother tongue and or your dialect or your regional accent that you grew up with is going to suffice for the stage exactly when you're doing formal art music uh, we want to have a sense of it being something that's special and formal and 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 free of regionalisms too. Yeah. And if you go for that, shall all your cares be gone? Yeah, I think it it, it it attains that much better. Yeah. My other question there would be, would you do a lift between them? Because it happens a thousand times in a row then, all, all, shall all. Yeah, well, you could change it up a bit depending on how you want to place it. I think with personal, you, you have the chance to change things up and play with stress or what words you're heading to. Shall all your cares would work, and then shall all, 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 as you place it later, maybe you, you, you'd yeah. like to separate them and, and, and do the glottal. It works yeah. well. Yeah, I know we are jumping all over the place, but we had the voiced consonants, I almost said Stimhaft, the voiced consonants at the ends of words like dead, 
and then the S will go along with that in words like bands and hands. Yes. But if there's a consonant before the S at the end of a word that's unvoiced, we have a word like snakes, and then the S becomes unvoiced. Right. Yeah, and this is something that, uh, as a native English speaker, I don't have to think about. Right. But thinking of friends whose first language is not English, certainly that's a rule that they just simply have to learn. Exactly. That, as you say, after an unvoiced consonant, the S will be unvoiced as well. Yeah. One little thing about the ah sound. We have and, we have bands and hands. Um, and these are all on our I, list of hand words. These are on the hand word list. Yeah, exactly. So they don't shift to ah, and you do hear singers try and disdaining, and it's just wrong. I mean, I don't know if it's because it, it is a hard sound to sing to find a good placement for ah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's because they think they're, quote-unquote, being British by going to and, but no British person says and. So yeah. that is not a shift that's made. And disdaining, bands, her hands, mm-hmm. those have to stay at the cat vowel. Yes. The stuck-together A-E symbol in IPA. They the, can't change. The Miss Kitty Fantastico vowel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I really meant it when I said at the beginning of the episode that these voiced consonants at the ends of words in English is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. This is something that I struggle to get Europeans to understand and to hear for themselves. And it's a dead giveaway to native speakers of English when foreigners de-voice final consonants. German, Russian, and Czech will automatically de-voice anything at the end of the word, but if you do that in English, it creates a lot of problems. How your pains were eased would become east. <laughs> Till electo free the dead would become debt, D-E-B-T. Now, not every word has an unvoiced equivalent to get mixed up with, but chaos wouldn't make any sense to us, nor would bands. We also said that you can think about shadow vowels after these voiced consonants, and I always encourage people to put them in. One of my soprano friends was doing an opera in English in the States, and the conductor, another old friend of mine, gave her a really tough time. He kept getting on her case for singing shadow vowels, but then when she tried not to sing shadow vowels, he complained that he couldn't understand anything she said. A voiced consonant without a slight shadow vowel can sound unvoiced, and I personally recommend that the shadow vowel be closer to the open capital I, I, rather than the American schwa uh, in order to keep the voice pointed forward. Now, this doesn't mean that I want people to sing banzi or dead, but if you continue to think the vowel that you were just singing through that voiced consonant and keep it front, we get bands dead. And that's plenty. Try it and see what that does for your clarity. I also completely agree with Jason that we should pull our L's forward. It's really funny to me, when little kids learn my name, they always have a tough time with it because of the L. Ellen, in American English, sounds really far back in the throat. Whereas in every other language, I introduce myself as Elena, Elenaki, always with the front L. Russian also uses that velar L as the hard back L, so it's a good sound to have in our repertoire, but just be sure that you're choosing to use it and not just singing with your colloquial accent without thinking about it. 
I'm always advocating that people study up on their Greek mythology, and this song reminds me why yet again. In this text, we have the name Alecto, one of the Irinies, or in Roman mythology, the Furies, who were goddesses of vengeance. They were often depicted with snakes in their hair, hence the reference to Till the Snakes Drop. Alecto's job was to punish humans for their moral crimes with brass-studded whips, torches, and snakes. Of course, I never looked that up back when I was in school, or even when I was coaching at universities. But now with the advent of the internet and Wikipedia, there's no excuse for us not to get these references anymore. And in Purcell's time, they certainly would have known all of the Greek and Roman goddesses. We've talked before on the podcast about how to handle R's in English, but it's a topic that bears repeating, and there are big differences in the way that Americans and British people deal with the letter R. So I guess the biggest difference between American standard pronunciation and uh, a standardized formal British pronunciation known as RP, received pronunciation, mm -hmm. is what to do with the letter R. In American standard, we say R everywhere. Right. So wherever it's printed on the page, we go ahead and wrote. <laughs> exactly. You actually said you gave me the word for that just now, rhotic. And that's called a rhotic accent, R-H-O-T-I-C. Rhotic uh -huh. accent means, in English, we say R wherever it's printed. Mm -hmm. A non-rhotic accent, which is uh, the what R-P, received pronunciation, falls under the category of non-rhotic, means they only say R in specific instances. Right. And it's, it's pretty easy because there's one instance, and that one instance is if it's before a vowel, within the word or between two words. Mm -hmm. So we'd say there. Exactly. H-E-R-E. -E. Um, so it's at the end of the word, and we go ahead and say that R. Right. Whereas in RP, receive pronunciation, it's typically there. Which falls off almost to a schwa-y kind of feeling. So after some vowels, it disappears altogether. After ah, for example, we don't hear an R at all. Ka, mm -hmm. C-A-R. Right. As opposed to our car. <laughs> after eh, it kind of reduces to a schwa. So we get there. However, if there goes on, there is then that R suddenly shows up because it's before a vowel in right. the next word. And actually, that's not too far off from liaison in French. Right. Where the, the consonant is there on the page, printed, but it doesn't get pronounced until it links on. Yeah, to something else, exactly. Once you've established which R's are going to be pronounced as consonants, you have to also kind of look, all right, now how do we articulate that consonant R? Right. And for that, the answer is more of a historical thing. Until about the turn of the last century... RP speakers used much more of the flipped and rolled front R variants. Yeah. Almost like the, the old-fashioned way that we would that we want to sing German sometimes. We keep talking about like a nimbermeer. That's right, yeah, for sure. But RP speakers born at about 1900 or so moved to the more modern bird R, as it's called in a lot of the textbooks, B-U-R-R-E-D. <laughs> exactly. Which is often erroneously referred to as the American R. I suppose because that's the R we use everywhere and always have exactly. in North America. But really, they, as, I, as I'm referring to now, these speakers born 1900 and later also use this R. And so it, it definitely is a British sound, a British phoneme that is used now and has been since the turn of the last century. 
but when we hear Piers sing, for example, this uh, Hardy poem, mm -hmm. he reverts to an older pronunciation of R and uses flipped and rolled R everywhere, yeah. where it's a consonant, of course. So uh, by that, I mean before a vowel, where it can be pronounced as consonant R. So yeah. it's interesting, even he makes some shifts to his own pronunciation in a lyric setting. Yeah, well, I guess too, I mean, Thomas Hardy, you got to think turn of the century, it was slightly before that time. I jotted down here, I think he died in 1928, so, yeah. and uh, Winter Words was from the end of his life, but uh, we can only guess, but if, if Hardy were to read his own poetry in a, in a declaim kind of style, maybe he would have erred towards a uh, flipped and rolled pronunciation of R as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so the other, but the interesting thing for me is we keep talking about we would say there, but we wouldn't sing there. We would actually probably sing it closer to the RP feeling because we don't, we also, as singers, as you know, for the lyric diction of American English, we don't like er unless it's in an opera like Susanna where everybody's got a southern right. accent and they can get away with that. Right. In a way, if we know the shifts that are made for us North American performers, Fitting into RP and, and singing in that system is even easier, I think, in a way than knowing what to do with, with North American repertoire. Because as you say, what do we do? We do say there, car, far, and the list goes on and on, hard before mm -hmm. consonants, yeah. uh, heart. But what do we do when we sing that in, uh, with American repertoire? So... Uh, as I say, in a way, it's almost easier to shift to RP because the decision is there. There's nothing to figure out. It's, it's already laid out the system what to do with R. Well, well and in that sense, it's, it's a foreign language. So we learn it the same way we've learned German diction and Italian diction and French diction, mostly by rote and by listening to what other people tell us are, is what we're supposed to do, rather than, rather than trusting what we would want to do naturally. I think so, yeah. I also think it depends on the, the level, the tone of the text. You have to make some decisions along the way, I guess. And, and certainly the tone, the, the formality of it is, is a big part of, of how the decisions come about. Yeah. I love Jason's rule that an R will only be pronounced when it's before a vowel. That makes things pretty simple, doesn't it? The bird R is phonetically transcribed as an upside-down lowercase r. In singing and communicating in English, Catherine LaBeouf is very specific about when to flip or roll versus using the bird R. She says to use rolled R's for stressed words and intervocalic flipped R's for British, Baroque, Classical, Romantic, and early 20th century period works. For middle 20th century through the present, even in British repertoire, use the bird R's. She also says, however, in North American works with North American poets, we should always use the bird R. Phonetically, if you want to distinguish between a rolled and a flipped R, a flipped R is a lowercase r that doesn't have that bar on the left, so it's very rounded looking. The rolled R just looks like a regular lowercase printed R. However, if you're using the Catherine LaBeouf book, she uses a regular printed R for the flip and then a capital R for a rolled R. So don't be confused. According to the handbook for the International Phonetic Association, a capital R is a uvular R that's trilled. Again, for lyric diction purposes, we can adjust letters that make sense to us, but using the IPA gives us a way to notate things and be able to discuss them.
That's all for today. Jason again sent a file with information on ours, too, which I'll post at the blog for everyone to download. To find out more about Jason Nadecki, to download his worksheet on ours, or if you have any questions or comments for me, Ellen Rissinger, please visit the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and give it a high rating so that others can find it and benefit from it. And please post it on Facebook and tweet on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time.